with a confirmed vision of the future. That future is a future of limitless love. That future is beyond the grave, and Jesus is literally the definition of living beyond the grave. He has joy because he can see beyond the grave. He lived beyond the grave. He conquered the grave. It couldn't hold him, right? That's what we're saying this morning. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. The scripture is not only telling us that Jesus went to the cross with joy because he could see beyond the cross. He could see beyond the grave, right? So he was happy to go there. He knew what was coming. But it also says that we, say me, say I, we, me, you and I, we have to look to Christ to give us strength. Look to him as an example as we go up our mountain to Calvary, right? The scripture said that we need to look to him. There's a bunch of witnesses. Let's look to Christ. Let's remember what he's done. He went up to Calvary. He died on the cross. He did it with joy because he could see beyond it. It says that he's supposed to be our example. He's not just a, a story for us to look to. You and I have to go up our own Calvary, our own mountain to a cross. It says, do not be discouraged. Do not grow weary because you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Think about what the scripture actually says. It says, don't get tired, don't get weary, don't give up. Even though you've done much more than you have in the past, even though you've gone further than you've ever been before, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. People are not dragging you out of your car. People are not beating you to death. People are not dragging you, at least in this country, and chopping your head off. It says, don't get tired, don't give up. You've got to make it to the top of your Calvary. That's what the scripture is saying. There's more dying for us to do. There's more dying for us to do. The scripture goes on, verse 12, or excuse me, chapter 12, going on to verse 5, it says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not a son or daughter. What that means is if God does not rebuke you, if God does not chasten you, if God does not discipline you, it doesn't mean that you're somehow perfect or that God has somehow uh, uh, exalted you to a high level. What it means is you're illegitimate. You don't have a father. Every father disciplines their children. It says, don't despise it. Verse 9, furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. 
Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, say afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang low, the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. It says, do not be discouraged when you're chastened by your heavenly father. It confirms that you're a son. It confirms that you're a daughter. I remember what it was like to get whooped, and it wasn't good, and I didn't like it. And we got whooped like, like, at least when I was growing up. The kids today, they, it's different. Let's just say it's different. I had welts. You know what I mean? You couldn't sit down the next day at school. Some people might call that abuse. I call that straight and narrow. I still got in a lot of trouble. I can only imagine if I was getting timeouts instead of a hand or a belt. But here's the challenge with the Lord. When the Lord chasing us and the Lord uh, scourges us, right, and holds us accountable and disciplines us, it's somewhat of a slow death. But that slow death is necessary for you and I to be able to enter into life. Does that make sense? There's a a death and a dying process that has to take place as the Lord disciplines, as the Lord scourges, as the Lord holds us accountable, right? We die this process of slow death, but at the end of that, there's life. We, We are able to live beyond the grave. There are some parents who are just straight up abusive, right? But then there's other parents who are specifically and intentionally breaking the rebellious, sinful will of their children so that their children can be trained by that and later on enter into life, grow into healthy adults, young men and women, right? Later on, those kids look back and they're grateful for their parents and what they did. In the moment, they hate it. They feel like my parents don't love me. They hate me. They hurt me. They hold me accountable. If they really love me, they let me do whatever I want to do, right? But those are illegitimate children. They don't have a mother. They don't have a father. I love what verse 12 and verse 13, Hebrews 12, verse 12 and 13, it's amazing to me. It says, therefore, if you understand this, right, you understand that he went to the cross, you understand that you can't grow weary, you haven't resisted to bloodshed yet, that you got to keep going up your mountain, and you understand that there's on the road of that mountain, there's discipline and chastisement and scourging from God who loves you. That's what therefore means. When you say therefore, you're supposed to look and know what it's there for. It's everything that came before it, right? So verse 12, when it says, therefore, if you understand all that, strengthen the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Listen to what God is saying here. Strengthen your weak and lame limbs. Be diligent to sweep the road that's going up to the top of the mountain. So that you don't trip and stumble and fall along the way, quit, give up, or roll back down. Your own Calvary that you're climbing and that I'm climbing. But check this out. It's not so that you can enter into life and that things can get better for you and you can have joy and you can be happy. You go up Calvary to die. He's saying, I want you to be strong enough. I want you to be stable enough. I want you to have uh, strength to endure. I want you to look at the road to the top of your Calvary, sweep all of the rocks and tripping hazards out of the way so that you can make sure you get to the place where you can die. We have to die in order to receive new life. In order to receive new life and a new body and a new spirit, you have to die. 
We don't put additions onto this old one, onto this sin-filled one. We lay this one down so that we can take up a new one. See, when, when the Lord usually talks like this, be strong, be courageous, you know, do some push-ups. You got lame limbs. You need to strengthen them. Make the road straight. We think that that's, that's going to take us to this beautiful place. But in this instance, he's saying just to get to the top of your mountain so that you can get onto that cross. God's calling us to live a life now where we're in this world but not of it. We can still see the challenges of this world, but we also see in the heavenly realm. When you look at the conversations that we typically have with friends, that we have with family, that we have with coworkers, it's okay to recognize the challenges that exist here. Somebody say it's hard. It's hard in this world. It's hard in this life. It's hard with our finances. It's hard with our relationships. But if you at the same time have not begun to be a man or a woman who also sees in the heavenly realm and talks about positive things and talks about what God is doing, the things that have died and have uh, become new in your life, then we're missing something. We should have both. On a daily basis, we should find ourselves more and more living beyond the grave. Right? We know that we endured the chastisement and the scourging. We made it all the way up to the top of Calvary. We carried our cross when everybody was looking at us like fools. This should be the testimony that we have. It was hard for me to, to die. It was hard for me to get to the top. I wanted to quit. I thought I had been far enough. I had enough scars. I had enough pain. But I made it to the top. The Lord kept chastising me and scourging me. But he did it because he loved me and I wasn't dead yet. I was still living, but I was living in sin. To be able to tell friends and family or to be able to tell each other, you remember what it was like when you, when you threw that cross on your shoulder and you were carrying it and everybody was looking at you like you're a fool? Why would you carry your own cross? Why are you going up to this top of this mountain to die? Nobody's forcing you to go up there. You're carrying it by yourself. We look like fools, but we're able to say we've died, but yet we live again. We've died, but yet we live again. When we live beyond the grave, scriptures like this one will begin to make sense to us. This is Romans 8.35. You've heard it, but I want you to hear it like a dead person. Hear it like somebody who has gone up to the top of the mountain and laid down their life. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword what that means in, in our terms is somebody comes up to you, why are you still going to church? What are you talking about? The fact that my car broke down, is that going to separate me from God? The fact that I'm struggling in my marriage, is that going to keep me out of church? The fact that I lost my job and I don't have finances, is that going to keep me away from God? Do you think that I went all the way up to the top of that mountain and died so that little things on this earth could separate me from my God? You must not know the God that I serve. You must not understand what it means to be a true Christian. You must not understand that as a Christian and a follower of Christ that he went to the cross and he lives. It doesn't matter. Nothing can separate me from him. It says, it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Say death nor life. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor things present, nor things to come, height or depth, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Even if I die, even if I'm a sheep for the slaughter, 
even if my life doesn't get any better and it doesn't look good to the world, I know inside of me I have life that I didn't have before. That my, my death was worth something. It produced something. There's a scripture I didn't add to the, to the service or the sermon this morning, but Jesus says that unless something dies, there's no life going to come from it. A seed has to fall into the ground and actually die and begin to decompose like you saw in that video. And when that seed dies and decomposes, it springs forth into life. It springs forth into crops that give life to other people. It's the same concept he's trying to get you and I to understand. Unless you die, there's not going to be any life. Unless you're focused on living beyond the grave, you're missing something. Listen to the last verse in the passage from uh, Hebrews chapter 12. We read, I believe, 1 through 13. This is verse 14. God says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What a wonderful encouragement and challenge this is for the Easter season. What this means is, if you and I are willing to die, we can begin to pursue peace with people and holiness and righteousness with God. And he says, and unless we have those things, nobody will see God. We're praying, raise making announcements, we're going to leave from service and go to these neighborhoods, hand out flyers, come into the church, come and meet Jesus, come on Easter, his spirit is here, his spirit is alive. But you know what the scripture actually says? Unless you've died, unless you are pursuing peace with people, and unless you are pursuing holiness, no one will see God. They'll come in here and he will not be visible to them. What a challenge. But it also shows you why he says we have to die. It also shows you why we would be starting a series called Living Beyond the Grave and showing videos about death, because it's important. It's something we want to avoid, right? We don't like to talk about death. We avoid funerals at all costs. So I want to pray that we get the mind of God, that we get uh, an understanding of, of what it is that he wants us to receive uh, during this season. If you just bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for this, uh, this moment, this opportunity, this day, Lord. I thank you that you are alive and well. I thank you that you are living beyond the grave, Lord, and that you have something for us, Lord. I thank you that you don't give us many ways to get to you. You say that there's only one way to the Father. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. It makes it simple, but we know it's not easy, Lord. Likewise here, there's something that you have for us. There's gifts, there's blessings, there's newness, there's hope, there's destiny, there's purpose, Lord God. But there's only one way. We've got to die and be born again, Lord. Help us to understand. Help us to see. You give us the strength to do the things that we cannot do on our own, Lord. Our desire and our hope, Lord, is that you administer to each and every one of us this morning, collectively as a group and as a congregation, Father God, that we would be those that would pursue peace with everyone, even those who are hard to come into peaceful relationships with, Lord God, that we would pursue holiness, that we would not set the bar so low that just doing better than we did last week and last month and last year would be enough for us, Lord God, but we would always pursue holiness and righteousness. Your word says that we need to become perfect because you're perfect, Lord, that we cannot stop striving to be more like you, Lord God. Our desire and our hope that we would come into a, a fresh relationship with you, clarity and understanding, Father, but also that those that we would bring, Lord, to a church, to a Bible study, to an event, Father God, to a worship service, that they would be able to see you because of it. We love you this morning, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. Praise the Lord. So I want to I wanna give you a quote from a, a gentleman, a writer. His name is A.W. Tozer, and listen to what he says. 
in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, and no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul. And we wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. What a statement. What a statement. We've got a cross and a throne. Which one are you on this morning? Be honest with yourself. I don't live with you. We don't see each other every day. You know who's on the throne. You know if you're on the throne in your home or if you're on the cross. I have two prayers as we start this series, two things that I really am praying for uh, from God. Number one, my prayer is, Lord, let us beware of Christianity where you do all the dying. We, as men and women of God, we should beware. We should be on edge. We should, we should uh, be very, very sensitive if we are living out of Christianity where it's all about the dying of Christ and no dying for us. If we look up and we're not suffering some, we're not sacrificing some, we're not struggling with what we're being asked from our spouse or from our church or from our coworkers, if there's no dying inside of us, beware of that. That's not what uh, God has called us to. So that's one of my prayers. My second prayer is, Lord, let us also beware of a Christianity where you do all the living beyond the grave. It's one thing for us not to do any dying. It's another thing. It's just as dangerous if Christ is the only one doing all the living beyond the grave. He rose. He ministers. He comes in and receives our worship. He rains down blessings upon us. He scourges us when we need to be scourged. He sends his spirit to make us aware of things. He's living beyond the grave. But are we? I want a testimony where I do some dying, but I definitely want a testimony of where I do some living. Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. I think we posted this on the, on the church Facebook earlier this week. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Talking about our sins. They don't just get taken away because we want them to go away. They don't just get taken away because uh, God says, I love you and I want to take your sins away. When Adam and Eve sinned and they put fig leaves to cover their private parts, God came in and said, no, 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 you don't get to have remission of your sins without blood. So he killed animals for the first time and made uh, clothing out of animal skins because he wanted them to know right from Jump Street that, look, if sins are going to be covered and taken care of, there's going to be bloodshed to do it. Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Leviticus 17.11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So God's saying, not only with Adam and Eve and the animal skins, he says, but as soon as I established the people and I established the church, I gave you an altar and we sacrificed blood upon it, what? To make atonement for your sins, atonement for your soul. It's a costly price, the soul of every man and woman in this room this morning. We sang and we worshiped and the worship team said, you left the 99 for me. It ain't a group salvation. 
right? It's an individual salvation where Christ on the cross saw your face and saw your sins and said, yes, I'll take them. How much is he worth? How much is she worth? He said everything. If it was just for her, if it was just for him, I'll atone every drop of blood I've got. John 1, 4 says, in him, speaking of Christ, in him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. So here's the picture. God says, if there's no blood, there's no remission. Then God says, I'll, I'll provide the blood. It'll be my own blood, my son's blood. And then it says, the life is in the blood, the life is in Christ. He's a light that shines into darkness. So picture this. He is shining his light of life and love into your dark, dead casket. His blood is ready to wash you clean and to provide life when we have no life. Last one is Ephesians 2.13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far. We were like Adam and Eve when, when, when God came back and he said, Adam, where are you? He couldn't find him because he was hiding and he was covered with fig leaves, right? And then God cast him out of the garden and they were separated for the first time. And what God says is the same thing happens today. You can, you can fast forward from fig leaves to whatever you want to put on it now. But we're separated from God. And he says, because of the blood of Christ, we're brought near. We're brought near. He's calling us home. He's saying, look, I know you're in a dark place, but I'm life and I'm light. I'll shine and I will fill you with my blood that you could have life. You can have holiness. You can have righteousness. So that's the Easter story. You don't have to come back for the rest of the month. Here's what I'm excited about. I believe that on Easter, God is going to fill this place. God is going to move. People who don't know the Lord yet are going to be introduced to him. Uh, those of us that do know the Lord will maybe have this fresh move of the Spirit of God just re-inspire us and encourage us to keep going up our mountain that we're climbing. But I also believe this. Those of you who engage in this series, you're here today. Be here next week for Palm Sunday. Then be here for Easter. And then be here beyond the grave as we finish the series throughout April. I believe that you will have a different and special blessing. Does that make sense to anybody this morning? Come in once and praise God if God moves upon you and he does what we believe he does because he does it every year. He does it at Christmas. He does it at Easter because he knows just like you and I know that people will show up at those times. So he just, he loves them. He don't care. We talked about it in our Bible study. Remember he had people that came and served in the vineyard from like 6 in the morning and then other people showed up at 10 o'clock at night and he blessed all of them because he's not like us, right? He loves everybody and he's not trying to ration out his love. So I don't care if you got here early. I don't care if you got here late, but I'm going to bless you. The idea, though, something we didn't talk about in our Wednesday night Bible study is these people who came early, they got to be in his presence longer. They got to see him from different angles, right? Same thing goes for you guys. I, I just want to encourage you. I believe that God's going to move special in this series, so be here, right? You'll get a special blessing. Same thing with our Wednesday night Bible study. If you're here on Sundays, thank God for you. Praise God for you. But there's something special about Bible study. There's something special about taking a Tuesday night and saying, I'm going to go with these ladies. I'm going to trust that this pastor's wife who he's asked to come in here and, and speak to our ladies who's been prepared for three months has something from God for us, and we're going to be here for that. I'm going to trust that we're not just going to golf when the guys go out to golf on a Saturday morning. Thank God that we do fun stuff, but, but God moves, and we fellowship, and we're around men, and we're not getting loaded, and we're not getting high, and we're not chasing after women when we should be focused on our wives. We're together honoring God, and he's blessing us, Right? You can just come to church on Sundays if you want to, and God will move in your life. But it's those other things, those other opportunities that he gives you. If you engage in them, there's a special blessing. There's a double blessing. There's a double portion for you.
So I'll move on off my high horse. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, by faith, say faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, we're going to be tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. This is a, a great short portion of scripture to keep in mind as we go throughout this series because Abraham's faith is put on display for the whole world to see, right? He believes, if you read the scripture, he, he believes that he has a form of life already, right? He's alive. Sarah's alive. They're too old to have kids. God has blessed them. They have this boy, this young boy, probably an early teenager at this point named Isaac. He's got a form of life, but you know what he learns in this story? He learns that there's some other kind of life that he doesn't know about and that he hasn't experienced yet, but he trusts God. God tells him, offer your son, kill your son. He says, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm not going to worry about what I don't know. I'm going to worry about what I do know. What I do know is when you make a promise, you keep it. When you told me that I'm going to be multiplied more than I could ever count, more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea, if you told me that, then you're about to show me something amazing when it comes to life and death. You said it's going to be through Isaac, so if I kill him, you're about to do something crazy. You're either going to raise him from the dead, you're going to reproduce him somehow, but I trust you, Lord. He's not focused on what he doesn't know, focused on what he does know. God cannot lie. If God told you something, he didn't lie to you just because it hasn't happened yet. His promises are faithful. His promises are true. Just keep going up the mountain. Hebrews 6, 17 Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, right? It says God wants to show us how much he loves us and how when he says something, nothing can ever change it. So he makes an oath. He makes a promise to us. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. He's saying, look, I made a promise. You can stand on it. It's an anchor for your soul. If you leave where you are and you go to a place of refuge, if you are looking to get across what's dead and into life, you can be sure and steadfast. If I made a promise to you, I'm going to keep it. Abraham went up his own Calvary, right? Picture Abraham. He's got a young, uh, young son of his walking with him. He's got two of his servants going up the mountain. Then he tells them, you guys stop here. We're going to go up. He puts the wood on his son, and they continue to go up this mountain, right? It's Calvary. You know where he's going? He's going to a place of death. He knows that that's what's at the end of this journey, at the top of this mountain, is not a pot of gold. It's death. And you know what happened when he got up there? God would have his death. There was going to be death. There ain't no coming back down the mountain without any death. Right? He went up to put his son upon a cross to sacrifice what he loved. And you know what he came down with? He came down with life. On the other side of the grave site, there was life. He was living after that moment beyond the grave. 
but you have to go to the top of your mountain. You have to go to the place of death before you can really begin to enter into life. So let's get into it. Three people walk up to a casket. Not a bad joke, but just follow me. Three people walk up to a casket. The first says, man, I wouldn't be caught dead in one of those. The second says, I'll get in, but that's as far as I go. The third says, man, I see things on the other side of that casket, and if going through the casket is the only way to them, well, then so be it. One comes up, looks at the casket, I wouldn't be caught dead in there. The other comes up, looks at it, says, I'll get in, but that's as far as I go. The last one looks at it and says, but look over there. I see things over there that I've never seen before, fruit I've never tasted before, joy I've never experienced before, and if the only way to get there is through this, then so be it. Those are the three types of people I want to talk to you about this morning. So number one, those who have yet to die because they think life can be found on this side of the grave. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, Old Testament prophet says, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, if not, refrain. So back to our scripture from Matthew in our Bible study. What he's saying is, look, I worked, I labored, give me what you owe me. If I did a good job, give me what you owe me. If not, just keep it. Right? So they weighed out for, for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. This was written 500 years before Jesus walked the earth. But you know what God says here in these verses? He says, he calls it a princely price. 30 pieces of, of silver, he calls it a princely price. Then he says, hey, don't even use that money. Take it, throw it into the church, throw it to the potter. 500 years before Jesus walks the earth and, be, and uh, is betrayed. So let's fast forward to when he's here, 500 years later, Matthew 26, 14. We're not there in our Bible study. We'll be there soon, but listen. Matthew 26, 14, then one of the 12, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? They counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray Christ. Now on the first day of the feast, the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Stop there real quick at verse 19. On Wednesday night, we saw that when Jesus was going to come into the city for the triumphal entry, he sent two of his disciples. He said, go into the city. You'll see a donkey tied up. Grab it and bring it to me. If anybody says anything, tell them the Lord has need of it, and they'll send it. We talked about men and women of God. You don't have to be the one going to get the donkey. You don't have to be the one riding on the donkey. But you may have something that God says, can I use what you have to fulfill my will? They went, they got the donkey, and they, and they came back, gave it to the Lord. In this situation, imagine, uh, imagine right now, we want to have a little fellowship, we want to have a little lunch, and I just call one of your random family members. I, let me have one of your phones. I'm going to scroll down to one of your family members. I'm going to call them. Hey, we need a place to have fellowship today. We'll be over in about two hours. 
See, when men and women of God are living beyond the grave and they have the spirit of God alive inside of them, they know when the Lord has need of something and they're willing to give it to him. That's what happens in this story. He says, listen, go into the city. You'll find somebody. That's going to be the place. Tell them we need to have our Passover. It's going to be the last Passover. Imagine all the famous people in the Bible, all the famous people right now that we know who love God and serve God, and they're all over the place, and, and they're maybe being lifted up because God wants them to be lifted up, but they're famous. What I love is that there's so many more nameless people who have honored God in such a powerful way. This person that gave the donkey, we don't know what their name is, but I guarantee you they got a sweet mansion in heaven. Because if they're willing to do that, I guarantee you they would be willing to do a whole bunch of other things that nobody knows about. Could you imagine being the family that opened your house for Jesus to have the last Passover before he was crucified? You know, the Bible talks about outreach and evangelizing, that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. You know what the Bible, basically it, it describes that God is waiting for a specific number. He knows exactly who's going to get saved and who's not. Could you imagine leaving from church on Sunday, going into this neighborhood, going into these apartments over here where we found Vanessa and her family, handing a flyer to somebody, and then saying, you know, I've been, I've, been, I've been looking for God. Well, do you mind if I pray with you right now? Are you interested? Do you understand what it means to be saved? Yeah, but I've never made a decision. Imagine leading them to the Lord, and that instant they were the last one, and it's over. Could you imagine being the person to evangelize and witness to and welcome the last salvation into heaven? In many ways, I'd rather have a ministry without a title, church. Verse 20 says, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Imagine. This is the church we're talking about. There's only 12 members, but it's the church. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. None of them said, I know it ain't me because I'm about it, about it. Not one of them. You know why? Because they had consciousness of their sinful nature. They knew that they weren't right. They knew that they had gone farther than they had ever been before, but they were still not to the top of the mountain. All 12 of them said, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? That's the kind of humility we need. That's the kind of humility that will keep you going up the mountain to your Calvary. When we get self-righteous and we think we're further along than we are and we think we're more perfect than we are, that's when we'll find ourselves in trouble. Verse 23, he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it's written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son is, of Man is betrayed. You know what that means? He says, look, I'm going to the cross regardless. I established it in eternity past. I was birthed into this world 33 years ago. I will not be stopped. I'm going to the cross. Nobody crucifies me and takes my life. It's mine. I'm doing what I chose to do. But he says, but whoever is trying to get 30 pieces of silver to dog me out in the process, it'd be better if they were not even born. Think about that for a second. God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He's going to do what he wants to do with or without you, but if you betray him, there's consequences for that. If you deny him, there's consequences for that. You ain't stopping the plan of God. You aren't propelling it forward either. You've just been invited to be a part and to be a blessing and to be blessed. 
The Son of Man indeed goes just as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you said it. I don't have to tell you. Think about what God is saying here. I don't have to tell you it's you. You know it's you. I don't have to tell you you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. I don't have to tell you that you don't love me. You know you don't love me. I don't have to tell you that you ain't giving. You know you ain't giving. We cannot hide anything from God. We betray ourselves. We sell ourselves out. It's funny, I think back to when I was a criminal, a liar, an adult head, right? And I look back now, and the police didn't have to do any investigation. I'd sell myself out. You look like a tweaker. You look like you're high. There's no investigation that needs to take place. Your eyes are red. You're moving slow. You're talking slow. I know you're loaded, and you're behind the wheel of this car. It's the same thing with the Lord. Nobody has to sell you out. He knows. See, Judas came right up to the casket, right? But you know what he said? I wouldn't be caught dead in there. He was there. He was at that place with God. The casket is there. But instead of getting in, instead of dying, right, he says, I'm, I'm with Christ, but I'm not in Christ. How many people do we know who are with Christ, but they're not in Christ? They come to church, but they're not the church. He took money because he thought life could be found on that side of the casket, right? 30 pieces of silver. I talked about being the last person to evangelize and welcome somebody into the kingdom, and then it's over, trumpet sound, he comes down out of heaven, the dead in Christ rise, those who are still alive are caught up to meet them in the clouds, and you still got the flyer in your hand, the way. Right? Imagine being that person. But likewise, imagine being the, purpose, the person that for 30 pieces of silver betrayed Jesus Christ. What you going to do with that? 30 pieces of silver. And we look down on Judas and we talk bad about him deservingly. But how many of us in many ways are betraying him right now? For 10%, we're betraying him. How many of us right now for sex with a particular man or woman that's not our husband or our wife, will betray him. How many of us right now, for holding on to lies, holding on to anger and bitterness, holding on to unforgiveness for friends and family, didn't he say pursue peace with everybody? But how many of us will betray him for that? Count his blood as just a common thing. See, Jesus offers us life beyond our wildest imaginations. John 10, 10, he says, I came to give you life and life more abundant. Best thing you've ever known. No way you could sleep through it. <laughs> but it only comes through death. And many people will say, I wouldn't be caught dead in there. This is close enough for me. No thank you for anything more. I'm not getting in that casket. Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. You were a good church member. You had the shirt and everything. You went on outreach. I saw you at Feeding Friends. You had bags. You blessed people. You took on ministry. You helped in the, in the children's church. You did all that kind of stuff. But he says, I never knew you. You did everything that you did really close to the casket, but you didn't die. You never died. So I don't know you. The only way for me to know you is for you and I to be joined together, right? We have to die to ourselves, be joined to Christ like a bride is joined to a husband. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. If we want to be known by him, we have to be joined to him. So in, in legal terms, we say that the marriage has to be consummated, right? The two have to become one. That means the marriage has been consummated. It's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. Just wanting to be married to him. Just saying I do is not the same thing as dying with him, the two becoming one, consummation, right? Him filling you with his spirit. Judas eventually realizes what he'd done. He's like, man, I messed up. 30 pieces of silver, it was not worth it. I shouldn't have done that. I betrayed him. He's headed up his Calvary. He's going to the cross. What have I done? What have I done? And watch what happens. Matthew 27, 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, say Judas. Say Judas. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, he was remorseful. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what does that mean to us? You deal with it. He threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed, but he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they're the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was Christ whom they of the children of Israel price. Right. He hanged himself because he wanted to die, but it was too late. You see how that works? He wanted to die when he realized that he had betrayed Christ. He had got close but never died with him. He was with him but never in him. And he wanted to die because of it, but it was too late. It was too late for him. When he died, when he hanged himself... He didn't cross over the grave and enter into a place where he's living beyond the grave in the love of God. He died and went further down into the depths of hell. He went to a place that was more terrible and tormented him more than what he was trying to escape here. He couldn't escape who he was and what he had done and the life that he had led, and he died in that. Everyone who lives for this side of the grave dies in misery and dies in fear. There's no peace in life and there's no peace at the end of life. It's miserable and it's fearful. So that's the first type of person. They stop on that side. It can be 30 pieces of, of silver or you can just say whatever it was. And think back. The Bible says such were some of us. We all had something that we were willing to live for on this side of the casket. And it kept us far from him. So I ain't just pointing the finger at people who don't know him now. We all know that we had something. 
That's the first type of person. The second are those who have been buried with Christ, but they refuse to go any further. Remember the second person? They walk up on the cast and say, all right, I understand. I'll do this, but don't ask me for nothing else. I will not go any further than getting into this casket. These are the type of people who bring flowers to their graveside every morning. And they live in a state of mourning for what has died in their lives. Think about it. You know who he is. You've come to the casket. You know that you have to die. You get into the casket. But for the rest of your life, every morning when you wake up, you come right back to this gravesite with your flowers. Look what I've lost. It's so sad that he had to die. So sad that he had to go. So sad that I don't have him anymore. So sad that I don't have her anymore. I have no joy. I have no happiness. I have no peace. I have no future. I'm just waiting to really die so hopefully I can go to heaven. How sad. Romans 6.3 says, as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Let me say this. I'd much rather be in the casket than over here outside of the casket. So thank God if you've died with Christ and you understand his sacrifice and you've laid down your life, there's honor in that. There's blessings in that. But what a terrible place to quit. What a terrible place to, to call it like, that's, that's enough for me. That's as far as I go. Listen to what Romans 6 goes on to say. After you've been baptized with Christ into his death, verse 4 says, therefore, remember what therefore means? You were baptized, and therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has become been freed from sin. So if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot stop at the grave. We've got to be born again, and we've got to begin living beyond the grave. I'm tired of watching Christians, who I believe are Christians, who understand who Jesus is, who know that they need forgiveness, have asked God to save them. They've gotten themselves up a mountain or into a casket, and then they just stop there. Why are you living there? Why do you go to that cemetery every single day? Start living beyond the grave. Thank God that you were died with him and you were baptized into his death, but now you need to come out of that. Be raised in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Live beyond the grave. Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, first day of the week, now we're at Easter. They be, the, the first day of the week began to dawn, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to, uh, went to the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven came and rolled back the stone from the door. I'm going to stop right there and just ask you guys. I hope you've read it, but if you haven't, if you have, it doesn't matter. Listen, do you believe when you read? Like when I'm reading this story to you right now, I'm getting excited. I don't even want to preach. I just want to read it. I can just imagine there's an earthquake. Boom! The rock gets rolled out of the way. An angel sits on the rock. 
This is not just a story. This happened. Angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled the stone from the door. He sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here, for he is risen. He ain't here. <laughs> Why are you at the grave? Can you hear it? Does anybody hear God speaking to you this morning? Why are you at the grave? He is not here. He had to die, but he ain't going to live in this tomb. He ain't going to live in this cemetery. He's living beyond the grave like you're supposed to be doing. I hope you guys don't take this the wrong way, but I just don't believe in going to cemeteries over and over and over again. I do believe in honoring the memory of those that we've loved and lost, there is no life at the cemetery. Let's just be clear. There ain't no life for them, and there ain't no life for you. Don't get mad at me. I'm not saying that to be rude to you. I love everybody in this place, but you will not catch me at the cemetery. If I'm going because somebody just died and there's going to be a service or a ceremony, we're going to pay our respects, I'll be there. But I don't plan on going there all the time. There ain't nothing there. Listen, when I die, for those of you who are still here, Please don't go to the cemetery and visit me. And please don't put flowers there. Go to like Buffalo Wild Wings. Talk about all the things that we did together. Talk about all the things that we saw God do. Start dreaming and imagining what it's going to be like when we're reunited in heaven. And that's how we're supposed to live. I won't be there. I'll be living beyond the grave. You can go there and hang out if you want to, but you're going to find death there. I'll be in life, and you'll be in the casket bringing flowers every day. Too many Christians are alive but living in their casket. We're like vampires. Just going to get some flowers today to come back to my grave. What a sad existence. Christians living in a place of death and fellowshipping with other dead people. Right? We come together to talk about all our problems. How dead are you? Oh, I'm so dead. You don't even know what happened to me this week, and this, and that, and this person. Oh, you want to see my wounds, though? You want to see how dead I am? <laughs> see, when the world sees that, think about it. If you're in the world, and you think you're living life because you haven't seen God yet, you haven't seen anything on the other side, God says, Christians are supposed to be the light. Christians are supposed to be the salt. And when other people see us, they don't see light and salt and people who died and rose from the dead and are now living beyond the grave. They see these strange, ugly, vampire, zombie-looking things. Who wants to be a part of that? Come to church with me. You can be dead and live at the cemetery like I do. Matthew 8.18. When Jesus saw... The great multitude about him, he commanded to depart to the other side. Say the other side. He's talking about the other side of uh, 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 Galilee, but he's also talking about the other side of the casket. He's saying, look at all these people. I command you to go to the other side. What are you doing on this side? 
What are you doing in the cemetery? Let's go to the other side. Verse 19, then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is, he's on one. Jesus ain't like, I try to be when you call me. Hey, Pastor, I just want to let you know I'm not going to make it. And then I'll put the phone down. What do you mean you ain't going to make it? Oh, yeah, that's no problem. What you got going on? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, don't worry about it. I'll see you on Wednesday. I'll see you on Sunday. Yeah, go ahead and do handle your business. Jesus like, look, follow me. I don't care what you got going on. My dad died. I got to bury him. Let dead people bury dead people. Believe me, there's a lot of people in their caskets over there. They'll take care of him. You want to come with me to life? You want to live on the other side, or you want to be one of those people that hang out in the caskets? There's enough people there. You know what they do? Here's my shovel. I'm going to dump a bunch of dirt on you, and then you take your shovel, and you bunch, dump a bunch of dirt on me. Because we're dead, and we live in the cemetery. These ain't my words. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. The people who want drama in the church, let the drama deal with the drama. Right? The people who want anger in the church, let the angry deal with the angry. Right? The people who don't want to sacrifice, don't want to give, let the selfish deal with the selfish. Who wants to go to the other side? Who wants to live beyond the grave? Who wants to overcome their trials? Who wants to keep going up that mountain to Calvary? Who wants to die completely so that you can be raised completely in newness of life? People who want to just struggle and fight through their whole marriage, let them do that together. There's plenty of people who want to stay in that cemetery with them. Who wants life? Who wants hope? Who wants joy? Who wants deliverance? You come with me. Let's go this way. Let's go to the other side. Leads me to the last group, third type of people this morning. Those who stop here because, oh, yeah, there's life on this side. What, 30 pieces of silver? I'll never get in there. Give me the 30. People who know that they have to die, so they die, but they never get out of the grave. They never get out of the casket. They hang out in the cemetery for the next 10, 20, 40, 60 years until they really die a physical death. And then the third type of people, those who are living beyond the grave. I think it's important to remember that even those who are living beyond the grave, there is still a dying process that has to take place. We trust the Lord and we say, for the hope of what you've promised beyond the grave, I'll lay my life down. But it doesn't mean that it's any easier for those people to die. Sometimes we look at people who are living in that place beyond the grave and we think they're easy. We think they don't have challenge. We think they don't get sick. We think they don't have financial issues. We think they don't struggle to get to church. We think that their marriages never have turmoil. What are you talking about? <laughs> Dying is hard for everybody. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, look, I lay down my life that I may take it again. Remember I said earlier, nobody takes his life from him. He says, look, I laid it down. But I laid it down so that I could take it back up again, so I could live beyond the grave. David, say David. The giant slaying boy. He would become a warrior. He would eventually become a king. But he found himself in a place where death was going to be required of him. No matter who you are, no matter how good it gets, no matter what you've seen God do, if you are a son or a daughter, you will still find yourself in a place where death is required of you. That's at month one, year one, year ten, 
or year 50, you're going to find yourself in those places. So sin brings death, but remember, the chastisement of the Lord is a blessing. It's good for us. James chapter 1, verse 15 says, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Every single time. If you have a desire, and it's a sinful desire, if you play with it and touch it and test it, it's going to conceive. <laughs> it's gonna be, there's going to be a pregnancy. And then it's going to give birth to sin. And it says when sin grows up, it's nice when it's cute in a baby because you can hold your sin. Right? You can hide your sin. But when sin gets to be 15, 62, 230, there ain't no hiding that. And it's going to bring forth death every single time. That's a promise. So let's listen. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year. It's the spring, isn't it, right now? It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, right? So they've got enemies, God is moving, he's got an army, he's the king. They're winning battles. Many of you are winning battles right now, but beware. David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And some said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers, took her. She came to him, and he laid with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. She returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David, and he said, or excuse me, she went and told David and said, I am with child. See, David started with desire, right? He looked out and there was a desire. Not one of us has fallen into sin on accident. We weren't just walking to church, right? Like, oh, I'm going to, oh, Lord. What is that, sin? <laughs> That's not how it happened. We're way over here like, dang, I see it, but I'm going to church. I still see it but I'm going to church. I could probably get there and back to church before anybody knows. <laughs> David sees her on another rooftop. And you know how we are with sin? It ain't just us that fall into sin. We start incorporating others to sin with us. It'd be one thing if he went over there on his own and handled his business and did his sin. But what did he do? He involved his boys. Hey, man, go. You see her over there? Go talk to her. Ask her if she'd be willing to come over. See, eventually that's going to give birth to sin, and it's going to lead to death when it's full grown. <clears throat> so David, like, like all sin, again, we think it's going to be a nice little baby that we can handle and hold, right, and deal with however we want to. That didn't happen for David. After he does this and he gets involved in sin and it conceives, he takes it further because sin will take control of us. We don't control sin. I don't care who you think you are, how strong you think you are, you have no control over sin. I have no control over sin. That's why it says we're no longer slaves to sin. When we sing that song, it ain't just a song to sing. What it's saying is we know we were slaves. You know how you know you were a slave? Because you wanted to go free and you couldn't. Because you didn't have the control, it had the control. So you know what David does? He's under the control of sin. He says, okay, well then I'm going to kill her husband. 
put him on the front lines. He's in my army. I have authority over him. Put him on the front lines, killed her husband, and then married her. The Lord chastises and disciplines sons and daughters, though. Say amen. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen, Because of this deed, you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted. He went in and laid all night on the ground. The elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he wouldn't move, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't even heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child's dead? He's going to do some harm. He's going to keep rolling in sin. He's going to hurt us. He wouldn't even talk to us when the child was alive, and now that the child's dead, it's about to be so much worse. See, but here's the difference. David went up Calvary. He came to the casket, and when he got to that place where death was required, he got in. He got into the casket. He wrestled with God. He repented for his sins. He begged for forgiveness. He begged for mercy. God, I'm sorry. God, I was wrong. I don't know how I could do this, but please don't give me death. Give me life. Don't give me uh, uh, destruction. Give me hope. Please, God. Please, God. You know what God said? Death. You got to die. Death is what's required on this mountain. See, no matter what the sin is, death is always difficult. But let's see how the story ends. Death was required. 2 Samuel eleven nineteen. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David's back in that place of torment, right? When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. David said to the servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? He said, listen, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and laid with her, so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and now the Lord loves him. See? David stopped crying when the child died, and he started focusing on living beyond the grave. Can you see it? There was going to be death. There was going to be consequences. There was going to be chastisement. But of course we should cry out, and we should pray, and we should ask for mercy. But once that death has taken place, the death of your sin, listen to what David said. Why should I keep doing this? I can go to him and stay in the casket, but he's dead. He's not going to come back to me. I can either live there in that place of death. I know who God is. I went right back to the church and started worshiping. I didn't even go home to my wife. Right? 
You hear what David did when it was all said and done? It says that he, he cleansed himself, he washed himself, and he went to the house of God and he worshiped God. How many of us wash ourselves and we worship God right after we've been chastised for the things that we've done? That's how you know you're a dead person. That's how you know that you've died with Christ. There ain't going to be no pity party, Lord. It hurts, and it hurts bad. But where else can I go? Nothing will separate me from your love. You can find me at the altar tomorrow, Lord. And then what does he do? He goes home to his wife because she's broken and she's hurting too. She lost her husband, who I'm sure that she loved. The king ripped her out of her home. She lost a child that she carried for nine months, right? But he comes home and he comforts her like the man is supposed to do. And you know what he tells her? Let's start living beyond the grave. Let's start living beyond the grave. Let's honor God now in everything that we do. And it says that when they had Solomon, that the Lord loved him. Solomon is the richest and wisest man ever to walk the planet. It started in death and it started in sin when he went up the mountain, but it came down in life and in hope and in righteousness when he came down the mountain. Now he's living beyond the grave. We all sin like David sinned. But we all have to make a choice to carry our cross up to Calvary. We all have to make a choice to get into that casket. Ain't nobody going to push you in the casket. Believe me, we try. <laughs> David experienced pain and suffering, chastisement, but he trusted that what he was going through is what his father knew was best for him. What a wonderful opportunity we all have. If you're a Christian, you're going to go through things. If you're not a Christian, you're going to go through things. The difference is if you're a Christian, you know that what you're going through has been prescribed by your father in heaven and that it's good for you. I want to close with a song that David wrote. We sing worship, but not just because we like it and uh, it sounds good. I was up here at the altar during worship, and I was just smiling and laughing because I was thinking, God, only you could have us lift our voices, be in a vulnerable position, singing to you, and you make us feel good. Right? That should not make us feel good. That's awkward and that's strange. But if you've never engaged in worship, you're missing something. Only God, like, like how, how excited do you get to, like, praise your coworkers? <laughs> Could you imagine coming to work every day? You're the best employee here. You do it better than all of us. You make me look terrible. And you feel good? That's what worship is. God, there's nothing without you. I'm a sinner. I'm stone cold. I can't believe you love me. You're telling me you die for me? You'll break every chain. I deserve to be in bondage the rest of my life, and you'll break every chain. Oh, my God. And you begin to feel good when you worship him. So that's what the book of Psalms is. If you didn't know that, these are songs of worship. Listen to what David, the same one that just went through this experience, listen to what he says. Psalm 27, verse 7. Picture a song. Put your favorite beat and music to it. David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in the smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. 
This is it. Verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Listen to that song. Picture it flowing out of his heart. Picture him in tears. Don't hide your face from me, God. I need you. I know I've done wrong, but show mercy to me. I've got enemies on every side. He says, keep the path straight. What path is that? That's the path up to death, up at the top of Calvary. He says, don't let my enemies ensnare me. Think about that. The enemies are the ones that would take you off the road to Calvary and make you feel good about your life and your sin. I've always looked at this scripture and I've always loved it, but I've always looked at it with this focus on David saying, if I, I would lose heart if I didn't see the goodness of God in the land of the living. That's like where we are, the land of the living, right? What he's saying is if I have to wait till I get to heaven to see how good you are, I wouldn't make it. I've always seen it that way, and I still see the truth in that. But this morning, this is what I see David saying. I would have lost heart on my road to Calvary unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living beyond the grave. Think about it. I would have lost heart on my way up to Calvary, carrying my cross. I would have said, I can't do it. When I was getting close to the grave, I would have said, I can't do it. I would have lost heart. I would have given up. Unless I believed that I would see your goodness in the land of the living beyond the grave. Unless I believed that by the time I got to Calvary, even though I might come down and I would have lost my son of sin, you would have given me a new son of life and hope and righteousness. I would have lost whatever I, I, was, I was living in on this side, but you would have given me something that I can only have beyond the grave. I hear David saying, I'm so glad I made it to the other side of death. I didn't give up. I want to hear myself say that. I want to hear my wife say that. I want to hear my children say that. I want to hear everybody in this church say, I'm so glad I made it beyond the grave. I'm so glad I wasn't so afraid to die that I lived in my sin. I'm so glad that I didn't settle for 30 pieces of silver because of what I've entered into. Don't stop on the road. Don't stay in the place of death. I don't want to hear anybody say, you know what, I got saved five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, and I lived in the cemetery, but at least I got saved. That's depressing. That's demoralizing. You're worth more than that. Your life is worth more than that. Your family and friends are worth more than that. I want us to be able to say we've been able to begin living beyond the grave. Would you guys stand with me, Isaiah? Would you come? Living beyond the grave. The great news for everybody who's here this morning is that you get to make the choice. God doesn't say life beyond the grave is only uh, reserved for some. Everybody has an opportunity. All you got to do is die. So as we bow our heads, would you guys just bow your heads, spend, spend just maybe a few seconds focusing on God. Don't think about your neighbor. Don't think about friends and family in this moment right now. Just think about yourself. It's you sitting at the table. The Lord is speaking to you. He's asking questions and you're saying, is it I? Is there something I need to do, Lord? Is there a decision I have to make? Is there something that needs to change? With the heads bowed, with the eyes closed, this month, we're on the road to Calvary.
Jesus dies on a cross. He dies for my sins. He dies for your sins. Then he rose from the dead, confirming that there's life beyond the grave. It's not a story. It's not a season. It's not just something we want to celebrate. It's not about bunnies and eggs. It's not about picnics with families. It's the most important thing that has ever happened in all of time. I've made a way for you to live life beyond the grave. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. God is righteous. He's going to judge. Don't think that there's no judgment. He says, everybody's going to die once, and after that, you're going to be judged. Sin has to be paid for. It has to be judged. Every crime that's ever been committed, it cannot go unpunished. If a thief is not caught, if a rapist is not caught, if a murderer is not caught, if a liar or an adulterer or a fornicator is not caught, it's still going to be paid for. God is righteous. He will not allow it to take place. So Jesus says, my blood, my cross, my death is for you. For every sin that you've committed, whether you've been caught, whether you've been in prison for it, whether you've been held accountable or not, I am the righteous judge, but I'm giving you an opportunity to be forgiven. He says, if you're willing to climb into this casket and die to your old life, I'll give you life beyond the grave. But if you wait... If you wait until you die physically on this earth and you never came to me, you never asked for forgiveness, you never got into that casket willingly and asked me for newness of life and forgiveness, if you wait till then, you will be judged for everything you've ever done and everything you've ever said, and the judgment will be swift and the penalty will be expensive. Eternity in hell, he says. No matter who you are, you will be found guilty. The best of the best of the people that you've ever heard of, guilty. There's only one way, he says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've got to be baptized with me. You've got to die to your old life. You've got to ask for forgiveness of sin. You've got to put your faith and your hope and your trust for everything beyond this point in me. says, but if you choose to die today, put your life in my hand. One day when you breathe your last breath, it happens to babies in the womb. It happens to children from disease. It happens to people who get into accidents. It happens to adults who are stricken with cancer and other diseases. It happens to people of old age. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me unless the Lord returns. He says, if you choose to die now and ask me for life, when that last breath is taken, I'll complete this process that I, I have you in and bring you to a place where you can live fully beyond the grave. You won't go to hell. I'll remind you what my son did for you, and I'll welcome you in to life beyond the grave. Heads bowed, eyes closed. The question is this morning, 
Did anybody come to die this morning? Did anybody come to say, I'm done living this life on that side? I'm done with the 30 pieces of silver that I've been selling out Jesus for for year after year after year. I need new life. I need forgiveness. I need change. If that's you, would you lay your life down this morning? Just raise your hand right where you are. Nobody's looking. It's between you and the Lord. You can have it. Amen. I see you guys. I see you. You can have it. It's available to you. I promise you, you don't have to be afraid. You're not going to stay dead. You're not going to stay in a casket. You will receive life like you've never known before. I promise you. Anybody else this morning? Amen. I see you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. There's power in his name. The grave cannot hold him and the grave cannot hold you. Lord, I pray for those that would raise their hand, that would raise their heart right now here in this place, Lord, that you would save them, that you would embrace them, Lord, as they step into that casket. We understand the fear because we've been there, Lord. We understand the uncertainty. We understand that for many of them, they can't really see beyond that grave right now. Oh, Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you breathe fresh life back into them, Lord God? Would you remind them that they are no Judases, Lord God? They don't have to kill themselves. They don't have to wait for death to be damned to hell any longer. Their sons and their daughters, there will be chastisement. There will be discipline. There will be difficulty. There will be a road that they have to walk, Lord, but you'll never leave them. You'll never forsake them. Your mercy and your grace will endure forever. They can enter into life. Every difficult area of their life right now, Lord, it's been strategically placed by you that they would come to know you more. Give them strength. Give them hope. Give them life. Give them love. Give them endurance, Lord. Let them lay aside the weight of sin that so easily has ensnared them. Let us lay aside the weight of sin that so easily ensnares us, Lord. Let us look to you, the author and finisher of our, of our faith, Lord God. You endured the cross and you said we haven't endured yet to bloodshed. There's further for us to go, more for us to enter into, God. As we enter into our time of communion, I'm going to pray. I'm going to release you guys and we're going to open up the altar, open up communion. But before you go and receive communion, I want to remind you what it is that we're doing. Revelation 12.10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night, he has been cast down. The one who said you're a dirty sinner, you ain't never going to be more than that. You're a liar, you're an adulterer, you're unfaithful, you're unworthy. The one that stood there accusing us every day and every night, it says he's been cast down. And Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father saying, but my blood, but my blood, but my blood, but my blood, but my blood. When we receive communion, we hear God saying, but my blood, but my blood but my blood. We testify that we've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. The accuser of our brethren accused him before God day and night. He's been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. How fitting is it to finish this morning? Not only is it the blood that gives us the remission, 
Not only do we go and we receive the juice, we receive the wine in remembrance of his blood, because that's how we have remission. We receive the bread in remembrance of his body that was broken for us, right? But listen to that last line in verse 11. It says, they did not love their lives to death. The idea is that we don't love our lives, our earthly lives, to an earthly death. We don't just live this life till we're 90 years old and breathe our last breath and say, oh, we loved it. We did everything we could. We got as much out of it as we could. We don't love our lives to death. We lay our lives down right here, right now. Beyond the grave. Living beyond the grave is what communion is about. We were reminded that our God is not dead. That his body didn't go on the cross of Calvary, then into a tomb, then decomposed like the video that we saw, and now... Our God is alive. His blood has washed us clean. Strength and his body is risen and restored. And he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Entrance is through the grave and raised in newness of life. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the season, for the spring, for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday, Lord God. For all those that played a role and played a the reminders and the witnesses, Lord, of what we need to do, what we have to do, Lord God. Of the hope, reminding us that it's all about you, it's your blood, it's your body. We don't have to do anything, God. But honor you. Be salt and light, Lord God. Live beyond the grave. Be able to see us, the peace that we have with everyone, the holiness that we pursue, the life that we live after death, and that they'd be drawn to you, God. Have your way over us. Minister to us. Comfort us. Hear us. Don't turn your face from us, Lord God. We want to see your goodness in the land of the living beyond the grave. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys are